Welcome to Working for Women, the independent women's forum podcast, where we are changing the conversation about women and public policy for the better. Hello, I'm Julie Gunlock, director of the Culture of Alarmism Project at the Independent Women's Forum. Today I'm here with Jillian Melcher, a senior fellow at the Independent Women's Forum and an investigative reporter for National Review. Jillian, thanks so much for being with me. Thank you for having me. So today we're going to be discussing renewable fuel standards. Jillian, uh, you recently wrote a policy paper on renewable fuel standards for the Independent Women's Forum, and that can be viewed at IWF.org. First, can you tell us what exactly, I think there's a lot of folks that aren't really familiar with this issue. They might be interested in energy issues but aren't really familiar with what what is a renewable fuel standard. Can you tell us what it is? Yeah, sure. So it's um, it was established at first in 2005 by Congress, and then in 2007, um, Congress greatly expanded it. What it's basically doing is saying that by 2022, uh, the United States needs to use about 36 billion gallons of biofuels. That's including corn, ethanol, cellulosic biofuel, and these are essentially um, supposedly green sources that are mixed with gasoline to fuel cars, to fuel uh, you know lawnmowers. Uh, and the aim of this, really, is twofold. It's to increase America's energy security, and it's also to, you know, create a better environment. But a couple of years into it, the situation has really changed, and there are valid questions about how well this plan is working. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about those carbon emissions. Um, you mentioned in your policy paper um, that carbon emissions have dropped to the lowest level in two decades. Um, you know, at at the at IWF's Culture of Alarmism project, we often try to debunk a lot of the alarmism out there, and we see environmentalists constantly beating this sort of terrifying sort of alarmist drum that everything's getting worse and the world is polluted, and 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 but yet our our water, our air are cleaner than ever before. So, um, is this because of these standards? Um, it, because of these renewable fuels? No, the simple answer is it's not. <laughs> It's actually because natural gas obtained through hydraulic fracturing is increasingly being used as an energy source. It's got about half as many carbon emissions when you use it as coal does. So as it replaces dirtier energy sources, the air gets cleaner. Um, basically, that has nothing whatsoever to do with biofuels, the increased use of it. And it's, you know, it's really interesting, actually, if you're looking into the air quality. Natural Resources Council looked at it in 2013. And here's what they said, um, quote, although it may seem obvious that subsidizing biofuels should reduce carbon emissions because they rely on a renewable source, many studies we reviewed found the opposite. And that's because, first of all, um, when you create biofuels, when you create ethanol, that's in and of itself a carbon-intensive um, activity. You know, it, it, a lot of the estimates about how much it costs are actually based on the assumption that natural gas is being used to produce biofuels. When other sources like, you know, oil or, or coal are used, um, it becomes even more carbon intensive. If you look here at when biofuels are used, um, it's, it's a bit more complicated than it may seem to the everyday observer. So it is less carbon intensive, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's good for the environment because it's not a very efficient fuel compared to gas. So you have to burn more of it to go further. And then on top of that, ethanol generates higher levels of emission, um, including nitrous oxide, volatile organic compounds, and those are two substances that are huge contributors to smog. 
they produce even more of this than just burning typical gasoline does. So it's a give and take, and there's, there's good reason to question whether this has had a net positive effect on the environment. Sure. So that's really interesting. So it's actually very carbon intensive to even produce these fuels. I think I don't think a lot of people sort of understand in order to produce these fuels, you need to burn sometimes fuels that aren't so clean. Yeah, exactly. And another thing that kind of caught me by surprise as I was researching this, that we're concerned about the air quality, the water quality. Um, you know, this usually comes from corn, and corn is a crop that requires a lot of fertilizers and pesticides. So while that that technology is always going further, and while it's generally a good thing to be able to safely cultivate crops, there are risks of, you know, groundwater contamination runoff in the streams. So it's, it's ambiguous whether this is something that's really having a positive environmental benefit. So we have these new technologies. So at the same time that these RFSs have been put in place, these re- renewable fuel standards have been put in place, at the same time we've had these new technologies um, that that have helped to reduce the car- carbon emissions, um, like hydraulic fracking, um, and, and other other sort of technological advances that have also helped America um, become, you know, fuel independent or oil independent, um, energy independent. Um, but that's not really good enough for the environmentalist, right? So so you have these other technologies again that are helping to lower carbon emissions. Um, but what are what are the environmentalists saying about these new technologies, like hydraulic fracking? Well, there's, you know, a lot of what they're saying is that it's bad, that we want anything that's green over anything that's traditional when it comes to fuel. But that policy doesn't even play out very well in the real world. I mean, the entire premise on which the rules of fuel standards are set is that if the government mandates this, if it subsidizes it, that the markets will catch up and be able to provide this, this type of fuel in the quantity that the government demands. So that often hasn't happened. In fact, we run into significant obstacles with it. So when you have more than 10% of ethanol in gasoline, you start to run into problems with how basic engines work. Um, it can yeah. rotate the engines. So like, our manufacturers won't often, uh, you know, offer a warranty if more than 10% ethanol is used in fuel. You have lawnmowers that are eroding, boat engines that are eroding. So that's something that technology hasn't really caught up to, regardless of whether the government wants it to or not. I'd like to talk a little bit more about the impact on consumers. I think that uh, a lot of uh, the people who, who listen to these podcasts and go to IWF for information are really interested in finding out what are the economic costs of these these sort of good-for-you or environmental policies. Um, so can we talk a little bit about how um, these impact or increase transportation costs? You talked about that in your policy focus and also how it increases food costs. But first, let's talk about transportation costs. Yeah, well, I think this has an impact in a lot of ways on consumers, some of them which you can guess kind of, and other ones that are a little bit more counterintuitive. The first one is, you know, ethanol is not that efficient as a fuel source compared to gasoline. So what that means in layman's terms, if you fill your your car tank with ethanol gasoline, ethanol mixed gasoline, you'll get less miles per gallon. Um, so you end up using more energy as a result of it. And that price spike is, is pretty significant. Um, the Institute for Energy Research has estimated that Americans pay about $10 billion extra every single year just to cover the cost of ethanol and gasoline. Wow. And then on top of that, uh, you know, this is one of the very few programs that the federal government both mandates and subsidizes. And it's very difficult to come up with exact subsidy figures because they happen on the, not only the federal level, but also state and local level. 
Um, I saw a good report that was looking at what happened when the Energy Policy Act of 2005 was in place, and it was estimating that the United States provided between 5.4 and 6.6 billion dollars. That's more than Europe, Canada, Australia, Switzerland, each for this sort of thing. And then, you know, there are Wall Street Journal estimates saying that we've been subsidizing this for so long that it's added up to, you know, billions and billions of dollars over the years, um, as much as $40 billion just in tax credits to the Treasury. So those are kind of the straightforward costs. In addition to that, there are costs that are passed on to consumers because a growing share of corn is used to produce ethanol rather than to feed people or to feed animals. And so as a result, you see that not only the price of food with corn as a component goes up, but also the cost of dairy, the cost of meat, because corn is so often used as a livestock feed. And then you've got the really sort of counterintuitive ones, which is as food prices are going up, um, the federal government uses the price of food to determine some welfare benefits. And so if food is more expensive, taxpayers are also paying more for, you know, public support. Yeah, I think it's really frustrating when you consider the food costs in America. They've gone up tremendously over the past decade. Um, Americans still do pay less uh, than uh, for their food than other countries, but we are seeing this ticking up. And and part of this is because of these um, the, these fuel standards. But we're also seeing you know other fear mongering on other issues. You mentioned um, you know that that corn, for instance, requires a lot of pesticides, but there are genetic modifications to these agro to crops um, that can reduce the need for these pesticides, and yet you see environmentalists um, spreading a lot of misinformation about genetically modified organisms. So here you go, you have again a possible solution to that, um, so that corn is grown with less pesticides, and yet um, it's you know it's then being demonized by the same alarmists who say you know we shouldn't. Um, use alternative fuels. So it really is a very corrosive sort of cycle we're seeing, and ultimately it, it costs the consumer so much. And let's not forget our economy isn't exactly totally bounced back yet. So I think this is really harmful to the American public um, to be yeah, pursuing this. I agree this. with you. I agree um, with you. I mean, I, I think it's been interesting looking at this issue, how many environmentalists have, have kind of turned against it. I mean, if you look at just Quite simply, um, the other emissions that ethanol is pushing out into the atmosphere. Um, I was interested to see that Friends of the Earth has some of the most solid research on how the EPA has lowballed the emissions created from corn ethanol. So this is definitely something that's not necessarily a partisan issue. This is an issue of bad policy that hasn't necessarily accomplished what it set out to do. And as technology is advanced based on the free market, um, you know, it's been much more efficient and much better than what the government can mandate. You know, natural gas has been a much better substitute and a much cleaner substitute, substitute than the ethanol that the government thought would be the solution. Lastly, I just want to quickly ask you about another part of your policy report. I thought this was really interesting. The cellulosic biofuel requirements, um, that seems a little bit in the weeds, but if you can kind of give us a quick summary of, of what that is, another, yet another sort of unreasonable EPA requirement that uh, to produce fuels that are very hard to produce and really ultimately um, can't compete with other energy sources and really probably won't do anything to help the environment. Yeah, this is a fascinating one. So uh, this has been called the unicorn of renewable fuels. And that's because cellulosic biofuel comes from non-edible plant parts, corn stalks, wood, grass, 
family. But those are things that nobody really wants to grow. And even if you do grow them, they're extremely you know, expensive to both grow and to transport. And then turning them into fuel adds extra cost. So I've seen calculations that for uh, you know, oil to compete with cellulosic biofuel, the price of a barrel of oil would have to rise to $191 a barrel. That is so much more expensive than it is right now. So, you know, it, it makes perfect sense why nobody is making this. You know, there's just not a profit to be made in cellulosic biofuel. <laughs> But the EPA has ignored this, has um, put down mandates that, you know, United States refiners have to use more cellulosic biofuel than is actually in existence. So the EPA is telling them to do something impossible and then turning around and penalizing them when they don't live up to that yeah. impossible standard. And so there's been some pushback with it. Um, that's also created problems because the EPA didn't want to put out another standard that was going to be unattainable. So it just happened for a couple of years. The problem is that means that refiners have to guess what the EPA might decide for a year because if the EPA decides it, it'll be retroactive. So they might be fine for not using a substance that never existed and that they were never told that there was an expectation to use. Well, Jillian, thank you so much for joining us today. This is a really important issue. I think women um, need to have a better grasp of these issues and understand um, how important this is to their bottom line. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please give it a thumbs up, share it on social media, or stop by iwf.org for similar content.